John chapter number 10 tonight. And I want to preach a little bit of a different kind of message, but something that I hope will help you and bless your heart. I tell you, it behooves us to uh, pay attention to the words in the Word of God. They are significant. I know that may seem like a given, that may seem obvious, but we live in a day when men are trying to discredit the words. Uh, Most people don't have a problem with the idea of the Word of God, but when you start talking about the words of God, you're talking about a whole different situation. You say, well, why is that, preacher? Well, it's because the idea of the Word of God uh, is a very abstract and vague thing. Uh, it can be uh, relative simply to the idea of a text or uh, to the notions that it sets forth. But now when you say that we have the words of God, uh, perfect, inspired, infallible, inerrant, and preserved, that's when people start breaking with you. Because that puts some concrete rules or some concrete standards by which we go. That means some people are right, some people are wrong. And I hate to tell you this, but in this world we live in, there are some people that are right and there are some people that are wrong. Uh, and if you don't believe that, you just go down the uh, highway about ten clicks above the speed limit, and it won't be long before you'll find a man uh, in a dark uniform with a shiny light on the top of his car that's going to be stopping you to tell you that you're in the wrong. Amen? Uh, we do live in a world uh, with some right and wrong. And I believe that it helps us when we pay attention to the words of God that are set before us, for they're perfect and they're trustworthy. I'd like to, you to look with me in John chapter number 10. Look down at verse number 15. And we're going to read a few verses here, and I want to use this not as a springboard, but as a framework for a larger idea. The Bible says, and of course this is Christ speaking, and He says, As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. Notice this phrase, He says, And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one fold and one shepherd. You say, who's he talking to and about what? Well, he's talking to the Jews. And when he says of another fold, he's talking about the Gentiles. And he's saying that my purpose is to bring them all together in one uh, heavenly assembly. And he says, therefore, doth my father love me because, here it is again, I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, and here we have it a third time, but I lay it down of myself, and we have it a fourth time. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Let's pray together tonight. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would just bless this service, Lord, that your presence would be manifest, and God, that the Holy Spirit would have liberty. I pray that you would accomplish in each heart that which would glorify you the most. And if there's any amongst us that are lost and undone, show them their need of Calvary. Father, we love you tonight, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We find a few times in our text here that the phrase is used to lay down. And Christ is speaking in relation to his life. He says in verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. That's the first one. Uh, Verse 17 says, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. That's the second one. Uh, Verse 18 has two of them because he says, uh, but I lay it down of myself. And he says, I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. Uh, you know, there's some interesting thoughts uh, that, we, that we can consider about this phrase, to lay down. Uh, 
It always helps you to think about what the Word of God says. Now, I know that seems like a given, uh, but I mean, don't just rush through it, but stop and give some thought. As the psalmist spoke of meditating on the Word of God, it'll help you if you'll do that. And I began to sit and think about this notion of laying down. We we hear this terminology all the time. In fact, uh, most of you, if you got out of bed this morning, uh, you could only get out of bed because you'd laid down in bed in the first place. And it's a common uh, idea in life that we recline and we sit back and we lay down. But there's a few things that are implied by that that I think are worth denoting. I, I want to say that first off, the idea of something being laid down implies the idea of perfection. Now you say, preacher, what do you mean by perfection? I don't necessarily mean uh, something without blemish or without sin, although of course our Lord was without blemish and without sin, but I mean something that has been brought to completion. You see, the reason you lay down in bed at night is because your day is complete. If you're working on a project, uh, Brother Richard was talking before the service about uh, cutting his uh, finger. He was whittling uh, whenever, and I hope he finished it. I've got a bad habit. I've got a, uh, about three or four chess pieces done at home and a whole other set that needs to be whittled because I just don't have the discipline, amen, to sit down and finish it. Uh, but the reason you would take that piece and lay it down is because it's complete. There's nothing else that has to be done to it. You're finished with it. It is fully prepared for the purpose for which it has been created. And so uh, the idea of laying something down is the idea of perfection or preparation. I would say that, too, the idea of laying something down has the idea of purpose. It does not say, I've dropped my life or I've lost my life, but he said, I have laid down my life. It's a deliberate action. It's not something that's accidental or incidental. Our Lord makes this statement about His life, and this is really the thrust of what He's saying. He's saying, I have the ability to not lay it down if I chose to, but I have chosen to lay it down. Could I say to you that even though that wicked men with wicked hearts took our Lord and crucified Him, it was never for one moment outside of the control of the Son of God. He chose to die for you and for me. He was not overrun by a mob that He could not withstand or resist or contain. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he chose not to uh, because he had purpose in what he was doing. And the idea of laying something down denotes this idea of purpose. Uh, You're doing it on purpose. But let me give you a third thing, and this isn't my message. This is just a few thoughts to take with you while we study tonight. I would say that the idea of laying something down has the idea of permission. You lay something down, and a lot of times what you're doing is you're laying it down that another might take it up. The idea of laying down, and we hear this all the time, and maybe you've had a discussion with somebody that hadn't had the backbone that they uh, needed to have, and maybe they were in a dispute or an argument and they didn't stand their ground, and you might have said, well, you just laid down in that situation, didn't you? It has the idea of surrendering your will to something, giving something up for the sake or for the purpose or for the benefit of of another. And that's the idea of these phrases to be laid down. There's many more we could talk about. Uh, but just as there are four times in our text when the Bible speaks of Christ laying down his life, you'll find that there's four times in the holy word of God in which Christ was laid down for a reason or for a purpose. And I want us to spend a few moments and study them tonight. Turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter number 2. Luke, chapter number 2. And I want to read just a couple verses to you. Now, most of you know exactly where we're at when I say Luke, chapter 2. Uh, we're in January. I hope that's not lost on you. If it's lost on you, just go outside, and you'll remember we're in January. Amen. Uh, we just got through with the Christmas season. And, of course, Luke, chapter number 2 is the Christmas story. 
And uh, the Bible teaches that our Lord and Savior, uh, He did not begin to exist at Bethlehem, but He was incarnated at Bethlehem. He is the eternal Son of God, equal with God and God in the flesh. Uh, he did not begin to be at Bethlehem, but He uh, began to be manifest at Bethlehem. He was incarnated at Bethlehem. And we know the story of how that our Lord was born of a virgin, not of a young woman, as some infidels would have us to believe. Uh, but as the Word of God says, He was born of a virgin, uh, miraculously begotten of the Holy Ghost, and He was born into this world uh, by His mother, Mary. And I want you to listen to what it says in verse number 6. The Bible says, And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. And now listen to the first thing that happens to our Lord after he's born. The Bible says that they laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Can I say first to you tonight that we see that our Lord's life was laid down in a manger as a child. Now you say, preacher, why is that important? Well, because there could have been no Calvary without a Bethlehem. Uh, there could have been no life and ministry of the Son of God without a Bethlehem. Uh, I mean, I think sometimes during the Christmas season we get all worked up about trees and candy canes and tinsel, and we forget sometimes the miracle and the magnitude of the Christmas story. I mean, God stepped into the reality of this world in the flesh. That's phenomenal. The incarnation is one of the most important doctrines in all the Word of God. And it is a disputed doctrine. Not everybody believes that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and God in the flesh. I do believe that. And the Bible teaches that. But as we've read this, what does it mean that He was laid down in a manger? Well, if we had the idea of perfection or preparation, I would say to you tonight that it was the perfect time for the Son of God to be born. I mean, if you study through uh, ancient history, you'll find that God had been preparing the world for a Messiah. Uh, if you study through the Roman road system that was uh, built throughout the entire world at that time for the purpose of taxation, when you look at the uh, political climate of the nation, of Israel. It was just ripe, just perfect for the Messiah to come. It was a prepared moment. But I would say it was a purpose moment. It wasn't an accident, of course, that the Son of God was born. He was born with a purpose, but it was permissive. It was permissive. The Son of God gave a lot up when He came to this world. I don't know that we talk about that a lot, but the Bible talks about us through His poverty becoming rich. When He was incarnated, that was a big deal. It had never happened before that the Son of God would be made in a fashion like unto a man, but God was manifest in the flesh there in Bethlehem. And it spoke of three things. I would say that first off, this passage speaks of the humanity of His incarnation. Well, that's the very thrust of what we're talking about. He became human. He was a hundred percent God. He never forfeited an ounce of His deity. Uh, but in a way that no other uh, person could ever be, has ever been, or ever will be, He also became 100% man. He hurt like you and I hurt. He hungered. He fatigued like you and I fatigued. He felt the cold. He felt the heat. He endured the existence of this life. That is a vast sacrifice for the Son of God. 
I find it interesting that probably our Lord's most famous and favorite title for Himself, we call Him the Son of God, and He is the Son of God. And there's a lot of beautiful titles that we use for the Son of God. He's the Lily of the Valley. He's the Rose of Sharon. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the Living Word. And on and on we could go with the various titles. But over and over again, the Son of God used the title, the Son of Man, when referring to Himself. He came that He might be tempted in all points like as we are. He came that He might feel the same pain that you feel. I'm reminded in Luke chapter number 4, and you don't have to turn there by any means. We're not going to do any reading there. Uh, But I'm reminded when the Son of God went toe-to-toe with Satan himself. And the Bible tells us that though He had the power, He spoke Satan into existence. He could have spoken him out. He could have used any means or any manner uh, of thwarting the advances of Satan. But instead, He quoted the Word of God. That's the kind of Savior that we have. I mean, He had been laid up in ivory palaces, but He came to this earth for you and I, and when He fought that battle, He didn't fight it uh, with any of the power of His deity, but He fought it with the same human instrumentality that you and I can attain to, that we can obtain the Word of God. Uh, We can use the Word of God in this way. That was the humanity of the Son of God, that He came and bore those things and was fatigued. But it speaks not only of the humanity of His incarnation, but of the humility of His incarnation. Philippians chapter number 2 tells us that He humbled Himself uh, in the form of a man and became as the fashion of a man. Uh, You know, I don't know that we can really grasp, and I made this statement before, uh, I, I don't think we can grasp all that Christ gave up until we get to heaven. I mean, could you imagine? I know how my flesh is, and yours is probably the same way. It hurts my feelings when people talk bad about me. I mean, it hurts my feelings when I'm uh, neglected or underappreciated or somebody does not, uh, you know, give me the credit that I feel that I'm due. If somebody says something mean or hateful, uh, you know, I mean, things like that hurt my feelings. And, and I'm going to be honest with you tonight. I'm nobody. I mean, I deserve 99% of what's coming to me, and I'm talking about with the way people treat me. I deserved hell, but I'm talking about even the bad that people do to me. I really got coming. I mean, let's be honest, amen. Some of y'all ought to say amen to nothing else. If you don't say it to anything else, you ought to say it to that. I mean, you know, I deserve it. I've got it coming to me. But now the Son of God, sinless and spotless, didn't deserve a thing that ever happened to Him. He didn't deserve a thing that ever happened to him. He deserved nothing but the glory and dignity and honor that was due his precious name. But he humbled himself and became a servant. The Bible says that uh, who being in the, uh, the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and he humbled himself and became a servant, and became as the fashion of man. It speaks of the humility of His incarnation, and it speaks of the humanity of it. But I would say that it speaks of the hatred of His incarnation. Look what it says, there was no room for them found in the end. Oh boy, that's indicative of what the earthly ministry of our Lord was like. No room in the end, no place for the Son of God. Do you know the Bible says in John chapter number 1, uh, that the world was created by Him, but the world knew Him not? Uh, the Bible says not only the world knew Him not, but He came unto His own, but His own received Him not. And yet the Son of God was willing to go through that. Could I say there's still a hatred of the deity of Jesus Christ today? You can go through every single major cult uh, in existence and you'll find an attack upon the deity of Christ. Do you know why they attack the Word of God? Because they want to attack the deity of Christ. Do you know why they attack the exclusivity of the way to heaven? Because they want to attack the deity of Jesus Christ. I'm telling you now, Satan has always desired his throne and he still desires his throne to this day. 
Every single major cult does something to try to dethrone the deity of Christ. Uh, the Seventh-day Adventists claim that he's equal uh, with Michael. The Jehovah's Witnesses uh, claim that he's equal with Lucifer. Uh, the Mormons claim that he's equal with you and I, just elevated to a new status. I'm saying every single cult tries to destroy Christ's deity. They hate the fact that he's the Son of God. They hate that He is God in the flesh. There's always been a hatred of Christ's incarnation. There is still to this day. He laid down His life in the manger as a child. But our text in John chapter number 10 is not talking necessarily about His laying down His life there. But I would say that number two, He laid down His life not only as a, as a child in the manger, but I would say that He laid down His life on the cross as a criminal. That's what He's talking about. He says, I lay down my life that I might take it up again. He said, this power have I received of my Father. He said, I lay down my life uh, for the sheep. That was the ultimate sacrifice, was Calvary. Nothing can ever measure up to it. Nothing can ever be measured against it. Calvary is the absolute epitome of what sacrifice could ever be. You'll hear people say all the time, they'll quote uh, John fifteen thirteen, and they'll talk about the Son of God. And the Bible says Christ is speaking to His disciples. Uh, they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before He'll be crucified. Uh, and He says to them, He says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. People say, Oh, the Son of God laid down His life for His friends. No, He didn't lay down His life for His friends. Romans 5, 8 says, But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's, that's the greatest love man can have, is to lay down his life for his friends. But the Son of God, his love went far beyond the love that a man could have. It was a divine love. It was a supernatural love. When he laid down his life on the cross, I want to say that he did it in three ways or for three purposes. I want to say that first off, we see providential submission. I won't have you turn there, but in Luke chapter 22, our Lord is there in the Garden of Gethsemane that I just spoke about. And uh, there's a lot of debate and dispute and, and well, just put it honestly, uh, bickering and arguing about what took place there in the garden. But he makes the statement. He looks at, uh, up towards heaven and he's praying, sweat drops as it were of blood. Uh, and he asks his father, says, uh, let this cup pass from me. But then he qualifies it with this statement. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. Could I say to you that there is a, the, the human part of the Son of God hated Calvary as much as you or I would have. The Bible says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Listen, despising the shame. I'm not by any means saying that the Son of God uh, was sinful because he wasn't. I'm not saying that the Son of God had a sin nature because He didn't. I heard a, a preacher the other day uh, on TV. It was Jesse Duplantis is who it was. I don't mind calling names of heretics if they're heretics, amen. And you say, well, I saw him on TV and, you know, he, he, he talks funny and he makes me laugh. Well, that's fine. So does Carrot Top. That don't mean we ought to get our theology from him, amen. And I, I, well, I don't know, he don't make me laugh either, but that don't matter. I, I was watching, and Jesse Duplantis made, the, made this statement. He said that the Son of God had to resist his sin nature just as you and I do. Friend, that's heresy. I don't care how nice a suit a man has. I don't care how many people go to his church. I don't care how many TV stations he's on. You say, preacher, you're being critical. Yeah, we need a little critical thinking in this day. I mean, uh, you know, uh, wise as serpents, harmless as doves. We need a little critical thinking today, amen? And Jesse Duplantis made that. So I don't believe the Son of God had a sin nature. I believe He was born perfect and sinless. I believe that in Him was no sin. He knew no sin and He did no sin. 
just as the Scripture says. But I do realize this, that the human part of him hated the notion of the cross. And it's not sinful uh, to not want to go through trial and affliction. Uh, It's not sinful to not want to endure those things. And the Son of God, the human side of Him, did not but for the joy that was set before Him. You know what He saw? He saw you and me being born again. That's what He saw. He saw the Bible speaks of the Lord seeing the uh, fruit of His seed prospering. And the Lord saw what Calvary would mean in the life of a person that was lost and undone. And so what did He do? He submitted to the will of His Father. There's a lot of mystery about the Garden of Gethsemane. Never, ever, ever were the will of the Son and the will of the Father in disharmony. Never once. But nevertheless, we find that though He were a Son, yet learned He obedience through the things which He suffered. He submitted in providential submission. But I would say not only uh, do we see providential submission when He laid down His life, but I would say that also we see perfect substitution. You know, I made the statement earlier that uh, a life laid down denotes the idea of perfection. Something's completed. Something's done. Christ said, I'm not come to destroy the law, but to what? To fulfill it. To fulfill it. The Bible says, but when the fullness of time was come, in the book of Galatians, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, uh, to redeem them that were under the law. I'm saying that the Son of God, in the 33 and a half years that He walked this earth, He never broke a single commandment. He never committed a single sin. He kept the law absolutely perfectly. You say, why is that important, preacher? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but let me give you just one because we're preaching about it. One of the reasons is because He had to be a perfect sacrifice for you and me. His work was fulfilled. It was finished. And so he laid down his life. His life, what was the purpose of his life? The purpose, Brother Ralph, of his life was not to open blinded eyes uh, and to heal lame legs. He did that and the Spirit of God was upon him and had anointed him to do it. Uh, But the purpose of his life was not that he would do those things. Uh, There would be men after him that would do those things through the power of the Holy Ghost. And there were men before him that had done those things through the power of the Holy Ghost. What did the Son of God come and do that no other person could ever do? He came and lived a perfect life. That's what he did. And it was an absolute perfect substitution on Calvary. Uh, I'm interested. Romans chapter number 3 says to declare at this time His righteousness. His righteousness. When God sees you, and I said this the other day, God doesn't just see the blood. God sees His Son. God sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. God sees us robed in His majesty and in His spotless Lamb. That's who He sees when He looks upon us. That's grace, friend. That's grace. It'll never... I mean, friend, I will never understand why there's people that think they can be that righteous and work their way to heaven. I couldn't do it. You couldn't either. You've sinned, friend. You've sinned three times since you've been listening to me. I can tell by the way you're looking at me. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all fail. We're all frail. We cannot do it in and of ourselves. But thank God that salvation is not based on our ability. Hey, if it was in my hands, I couldn't keep it anyway. It's not in my hands. I'm in His hands. He'll never lose me. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. Based upon what Christ did at Calvary, it was a perfect substitution. But it was laid down not only as a perfect substitution, but brother, for a powerful salvation. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Do you realize that because Christ laid down His life, we might have life? That was the purpose. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came, I mean, He didn't come to call sinners or the righteous to repentance, but sinners. He's interested in sinners today. 
He's as interested in sinners today as he was uh, when he walked up upon a woman uh, that had been brought to him that was uh, caught in adultery. He's as interested in sinners today as he was when a little short man was peering off of a sycamore tree. He's just as interested in sinners today as he was the day that they pulled the tiles off the roof and laid a palsied man in front of him. He is just as interested in sinners today. He laid down His life for you and me that we might be saved. I'm all for trying to help people. I mean, don't misunderstand me now. I'm all for trying to help people. If I, I mean, if I got two sandwiches and you're hungry, you can at least have half of one. I mean that. I mean, I'm, I'm all for helping people. I mean, if a man needs shoes, I hope he gets shoes. If he needs food, I want him to get food. I'm not opposed to doing that. But listen to me, the job of the church is not to fill bellies and to shoe feet. The job of the church is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're here for. We're not here as a social effort. I'm not opposed to helping people. We're here that men might be saved through the gospel. That's why Christ came. Christ didn't just come to fill bellies. He could when He wanted to. He took the lunch of a little lad and broke it and broke it and broke it until uh, 5,000, just the men, not counting the women and children, were filled. He could, but why didn't He do that every day? He could have done that. He could have sat there in the 33 and a half years that he was on this earth, or even in the three and a half years that he was in public ministry. He could have sat on a chair all day and broke bread and fed the entire nation of Israel, fed the entire world, but he did not do that. Why? He wasn't come. God's, listen, if God was interested in feeding people, he would have sent a chef. If God was interested in making people rich, He would have sent a banker. If God was interested in making people moral, He would have sent a counselor. But He didn't. He sent a Savior. Because that's what God's interested in, is saving men. We find that He laid down His life uh, on Calvary as a criminal. But I would say, Brother Ralph, that we see a third time, we find that He was laid in the tomb as a commoner. Look at it with me. It's uh, uh, in the book of Matthew. And turn with me to chapter number 27. Uh, The Bible says in verse 59, I'll give you a moment to get there, but we draw our attention around the finished work of Calvary. And uh, the world is not even aware of what's taken place. Uh, The world has turned black, turned dark. Uh, The earth has shaken. The veil has been rent. Christ has cried out, It is finished. The Scripture has been fulfilled concerning Calvary. And now the day is winding close. The Bible says in verse number 59, And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. It would have been a tomb like any other tomb. Isn't it interesting that the Son of God was placed in a tomb like any other tomb, Brother Al? wouldn't have been significant. You would have found no gold inlaying. You would have found no diamonds encrusted upon it. Just a, just a tomb that a common man would have used. But what does it signify? You know, I've, I've thought for a long time... Uh, you know, the Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Moreover, I declare unto you, brethren, that which I also received, how that Christ died according to the Scripture. And it does not say how that Christ died according to the Scripture and rose the third day. It says how that Christ died according to the Scripture and was buried and rose again the third day. Why is that important? Why is the burial of Christ a part of the gospel, brother? Well, I mean, why is that so vastly important? You don't hear a lot of preaching about Christ's burial. You might hear some focus drawn on Joseph of Arimathea or upon Nicodemus, but you don't hear a lot of preaching theologically on the burial of Christ. Could I say to you that there was a reason for the burial of Christ? It pictured for us the Old Testament sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, and it pictured for us the scapegoat that was selected. 
You see, the scapegoat, there were two animals that would be selected on that Day of Atonement. One was the sacrificial animal. Uh, and this uh, bullock would be taken and sacrificed, and that was the uh, sacrifice of atonement. We call it today Yom Kippur. And you can read through the Old Testament see all the beautiful imagery of the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary uh, and the atonement uh, sacrifice that was given. But then there was another animal called the scapegoat. Do you know what this animal's only function was? The high priest would take that animal and put his hand upon it and pronounce the sins of the nation of Israel. And then that animal would be taken and sent out into the wilderness, never to be seen anymore. It was called the scapegoat. We still use this language today. And you might have said before, well, I feel like a scapegoat. Or you might have seen somebody and had pity on them and said, bless their hearts, uh, they're being treated like a scapegoat. Because the function of the scapegoat was symbolically to take all the sins of the nation of Israel and to carry them out of the camp, never to be seen anymore. Do you realize, friend, that uh, whenever Christ died upon the cross and He was buried in a tomb, uh, your sins were buried with Him? taken away, the guilt, the shame can be taken away because of what Christ did. Uh, it was buried and taken out of this world. There were some things that took place in that tomb, Brother Ralph, and I think they're worth mentioning. I'm talking about things that took place between the death and the resurrection that took place. I would say that first off, uh, that He buried our sins. They were taken away. But I would say, secondly, that He bought the Holy Spirit for us. Do you know the Bible says that the Spirit of God in Ephesians chapter 1, that He's the earnest of our inheritance until the day of redemption. The Old Testament believers were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit functioned in the Old Testament. You'll find the Holy Spirit all through the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, the first time He's mentioned, the Bible says the Spirit of God moved uh, upon the waters of the deep. You ever wonder why it is that you can take dead dirt, dead water, and a dead seed, put it all together, and it comes to life? It's because when the waters were covering the face of the earth, the Spirit of God moved upon the waters. And this earth has a life-giving quality. Now, I'm not talking about uh, naturalistic worship. I'm not talking about worshiping the creature more than the Creator. I'm not saying we ought to worship dirt. Amen. What I'm saying is that the Spirit of God moved upon this earth, and there are some life-giving properties. When you take that seed and put it in the dirt, it grows. The Spirit of God was found in creation. The Spirit of God is found all through the Old Testament. In fact, sometimes He's on people, Brother Wow. Ralph. Sometimes he's before him, behind him, beside him, uh, diagonal of him. But one place he never is is within people in the Old Testament. He never indwelt people in the Old Testament. Uh, do you know why that is? It's because in the Old Testament he was sent for a purpose, but he had not been purchased for the indwelling and use of the believer. When Christ died upon Calvary and paid the debt for your sin and mine, uh, do you know that God has a plan for us? You know that? I, I don't know, maybe I'm scattered or you are, but it's okay, we'll, we'll pick up the pieces. God has a plan for us, and it might include a lot of things, but can I tell you one thing that God has a plan for, for every single born-again, blood-washed believer? Uh, we talk about predestination, and the Calvinists like to talk about predestination. Predestination is in the Bible. Never that a man's predestined to choose heaven or predestined to choose hell. Never that a man is going to go one place or the other and has no free will choice about it. But once a man has been saved, the Bible says that he is predestined to be conformed to the image of God's dear Son. God's plan for our life is that we might be found in the image of Jesus Christ. And do you know that that's going to happen when He returns? The Bible says, uh, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Now. But it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him 
as He is. At that moment, Philippians chapter number uh, 3 says that our vile bodies shall be fashioned, changed, and fashioned like unto His glorious body. That's going to take place at the moment of the rapture. And do you know what? Just as a, a little taste of it, you know what earnest money is. And some of you that bought a house a few years back, you know what earnest money is. That means you're serious. That's what we young whippersnappers call down payment money. And it means I'm serious about this purchase. Uh, God the Holy Father and God the Holy Son bestowed upon the believer, God the Holy Spirit, as a down payment on the inheritance of our day of redemption. That took place whenever Christ died for our sins and was buried. The Bible says that He uh, ascended on high and led captivity captive. And the Bible says He gave gifts unto all men. Let me give you a third thing. During the burial of Jesus Christ, when He laid down His life, not only uh, did He bury our sins and by the Spirit, but He brought us closer to God. Do you know in Luke chapter number 16, the story is given of a rich man that dies in his sins. And the Bible paints a picture for us of the man being in a place called paradise. That's what the Old Testament place for heaven was, was paradise. But it's not the abode of God. It's called Abraham's bosom. And it's described as being a place that is adjacent to, the, to hell. There's a great chasm in between them. But God is not dwelling there. God's dwelling in the heavens of heavens. So why did there have to be this Old Testament place? Well, even though they had been saved and even though they were redeemed, the price had still not been paid. They could not dwell in the presence of God Almighty. But the Bible says in the book of Ephesians that He ascended on high, He led captivity captive. What does that mean, Brother Ralph? That means He went down and gathered up all the Old Testament saints, and the price had been paid, and the gates were unlocked, and the way was made, and He carried them on to heaven. That's what He did when He died for your sins and was buried in a tomb. Let me give you a final one, Brother Ralph, and then I'm done. I've took up. You've got to get up at 10 o'clock. I've got to hurry. Let me say, not only in the manger as a child, on the cross as a criminal, in the tomb as a commoner, but let me give you a final way that Christ was laid down. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6 and 7, Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. He was laid in Zion as a cornerstone. Now this imagery, and by the way, there is a difference, I believe, between a cornerstone and the head of the corner. The cornerstone would have been the beginning stone that the builders would have laid. It was the very first stone that would have been. It was a foundational stone. And it would set the tone and it would set the, uh, the plumbness and the squareness of the entire building. Uh, it was usually more ornate. It was usually larger and it would be placed. And everything would be built out from that cornerstone. The headstone or the head of the corner would have been the last stone that was placed. That's why the book of Psalms give the prophecy uh, that the stone which the builders disallowed, the same as made the head of the corner. There was an old uh, story that was given when they were building the temple uh, that they were had all the stones and they would uh, take and in the quarry they would fashion them, Brother Ralph, because you couldn't have any noise taking place while the temple was being built that would interrupt the worship. And so uh, the men that had got the plans were fashioning these stones and uh, making them in the right shape and in the right size. And then the men that were putting uh, the temple up would come down and get those stones and carry them up. Well, someone walked down and they grabbed that last stone, Brother Ralph, and they got 
got it up there and they weren't to that place in the building yet. And so when they got this stone and they kept trying to place it and trying to place it and trying to place it, they never could. So they said, well, this stone's rubbish. It doesn't fit into our plans, Brother Ralph. So they took it and they threw it over the side. Well, that sounded pretty good until they came to the end of things. You know, there's a lot of people that have cast Jesus Christ off and it seems pretty good. But one of these days they're coming to the end of everything and they're going to find out exactly where he fit in because they had to go back down the hill, pick up that stone and put it in its proper place. It was the crowning stone that was to be placed the very last one. That's the head of the corner. The Bible says unto those that are disobedient, he's become the head of the corner. But unto you and I which believe, he's elect and precious, and he is the chief cornerstone, that foundational stone. Uh, The Bible is speaking of the church when it says this. Zion was a hill in Jerusalem, and oftentimes uh, it is spoken of as the church. The church will be called uh, Zion in the Bible in a spiritual sense. Do you know that Christ is the foundation of the church? Not St. Peter. I know there's a lot of people that believe that Peter's the foundation of the church, but that's not what Christ was saying when he said, upon this rock will I build my church. He looked at Peter and he said, "Uh, Peter, thou art Peter or Petra, little rock. Rock, little rock, pebble, just just a little one. He said, but upon this rock, Petros, me, this big rock, will I build my church. He wasn't saying, Peter, you're going to be the guy. He was saying, Peter, you ain't much, but don't worry because it's all on me. That's what he was saying. And Christ is the beginning of the church. I want to give you three things very quickly. I'd say because, uh, first off, he's the first fruits of the resurrection, Brother Ralph. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 uh, that the resurrection is going to happen in three phases. Now listen carefully, three phases. A lot of people believe in a general resurrection, but the Bible does not teach a general resurrection. The Bible teaches uh, three resurrections concerning the believer and two concerning people at large. The Bible says there's a resurrection unto unrighteousness and a resurrection unto righteousness. That is the judgment seat of Christ for the believer, the great white throne judgment for the unbeliever. Read your Bible, it's there. It's on every single... I mean, go through it. It's in black and white and sometimes red. You'll find it there on your pages. But for the believer, there's three phases to the resurrection. The Bible says Christ, the first fruits. Christ was the first one ever to be resurrected. The first one ever to be resurrected. You say, well, what about Enoch? Enoch wasn't resurrected. Enoch never died. You say, what about Elijah? Well, Elijah wasn't resurrected because Elijah never died. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was the first one that went into death and of His own power and by the power of God was raised with an incorruptible body, a resurrection body. The Bible says, then afterward, uh, those that are His at His coming. Those that are His at His coming. That's me and you if the Lord comes back in our lifetime. We're going to be resurrected with a new body. That's us at His lifetime, at the end of our lifetime. The Bible says, then cometh the end when He shall deliver up the kingdom. That's speaking of the great white throne judgment. So uh, he's the first few fruits of the resurrection. But I would say also, uh, Brother Ralph, not only because he's the first fruits of the resurrection, which is the hope of the New Testament church, but because he is the foundation of the New Testament church. The Bible talks about Christ being the chief cornerstone that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles. But what's the apostles built off of? Built upon the Son of God. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter number 3, other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's the beginning. Uh, He was the very first. Uh, There's no one that was before Him. There's no one that can replace Him. If you're going to get saved, you're going to have to get saved by God's grace through the Son of God. That's the only way to be saved. There's a lot of people that are on church rolls that don't know Christ. You know it? I mean, that's part of the reason we don't check people's credit before we have communion around here is because at the end of the day, you don't know whether people are saved or not. Amen? 
I would hope if we had people in this room that have been in this church for a lot of a lot of years, brother. Ralph, I would hope, brother Ralph, that if you weren't saved, I think you are. If you weren't saved, I'd hope you wouldn't be so scared of getting saved that you'd die and go to hell. Amen. I, I would hope you'd just go ahead and get saved, brother Ralph, because at the end of the day, you can fool a lot of people. You know it. You can fool a lot of people. You really don't know who's saved and who's not. I know that I'm saved. I know that I'm saved. I was there when it happened. The Son of God did it. I know, I know that I'm saved. I don't know whether any of y'all are saved. And by the way, you don't know whether I'm saved. Right? So at the end of the day, it's got to be approved in our own heart and supported by the Word of God. We have to know by the Scriptures of the Word of God that we put our faith in Jesus Christ. If you're not saved by God's grace to the Son of God, uh, then you can't get saved any other way. That's the only way you can get saved. He's the foundation. But then I'm done with this, and you're going to like this one. He's the finisher of our faith. He laid down his life, and he is now the finisher of our faith. We don't have to worry about keeping our salvation because we're not the finisher of it. He's the finisher of it. We don't have to worry about working our way to heaven. He's already paid it. We couldn't anyway, amen. But, but he's already paid it. We don't have to worry uh, about being able to safeguard our salvation against Satan or whatever you want to call it, uh, because Satan has no claim or right to it. He's already been bought out at Calvary. Amen? Isn't that right? I mean, we were under his ownership, but then a transaction took place when the Son of God died for us, and we got bought out. We're under new management, Brother Ralph. He's the finisher of our faith. He said he'll never leave us nor forsake us. We don't have to worry. He's always going to be with us. We ought to be faithful to Him. We ought to walk with Him and walk for Him. But we don't have to worry about finishing our faith. He's finished it for us. I wasn't going to preach this, Brother Ralph, and I'm still not going to. But let me give you three things you ought to do to lay down your life. I'd say you ought to lay down yourself for Jesus Christ. First John 3.16 says, Hereby perceive we the love of God that Christ laid down His life for us, and we ought also lay down our life for the brethren. Uh, listen, we ought to put ourselves aside for the Son of God and for others. We ought to lay down not only ourselves, but we ought to lay down our sins. The Bible says in James one twenty one, Wherefore, laying aside all filthiness. We ought to put sin out of our lives. And let me give you a final thing. Uh, we ought to lay down our stumbling blocks. Hebrews 12.1 uh, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. There's a lot of stuff we got in our life that it's not sin, it's just crud. Right? You say, oh, that's, that's an unkind term, preacher. Well, we use it when we're sick, amen? That's what sin does to us, right? We've got a lot of junk in our life we need to get out of our life. And maybe it might not be classified as sin, but it's keeping us from running our race. You know, I think everything Christ did for us, we ought to be willing to do anything for Him. If He laid down His life for us, we ought to be willing to lay down our life for Him. We ought to be willing to lay everything on the line and say, Lord, You bought and paid for this. It's all Yours. Come and take any of it that You want.